Well, good morning, everybody. And we're going to continue our series from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 11. And it's on page 152 of the church Bibles. And it's all about the worship life of the church in Corinth. Paul is writing to them about some issues. And I'm sort of subtitling this talk, Are You Serious? And the reason I'm doing that is because Paul begins the chapter with some extra- what sound like some extraordinary instructions about worship. And it goes like this from verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or a head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, the first time I read this, and probably for several times, my main reaction was, are you serious? Men can't have long hair. Women can't have short hair. To have long hair uncovered is a disgrace. To shave your head is a disgrace. And in some extraordinary way, this is because of the angels. What? on earth is Paul going on about? And on top of that, Paul says in verse 3 that the head of every man is Christ, but the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Hmm, that sounds a little unequal. And some have used this passage to claim that Paul was a chauvinist, that he considered women inferior. So this chapter is difficult But it's very good news for Bible teachers, vicars and preachers because it keeps us in a job trying to explain it. So here goes. And along the way, I think you're going to find some interesting surprises. And the first fascinating insight is in the first verse, verse 2. Because there is a huge myth, particularly in charismatic churches... That worship should be unstructured, unplanned, spur of the moment, spirit-led, spontaneous, and that somehow tradition is the enemy of good worship. Let's read verse 2. Paul the Apostle says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for what? For holding on to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Wow, did Paul really say that? Writing to the most charismatic of all the New Testament churches, he commends them for holding to the traditions, just as Paul had passed them on to them. That's a surprise, isn't it? So the first thing we discover is that there were dearly held traditions which were taught by the apostles and passed down from the apostles to the churches, and that the apostles were very keen should continue on in the life of the church. And what's more... Paul gives the Corinthian church 
a pat on the back for holding on to these traditions. So, it's a good start. They've started well, but very quickly, in verse 3, Paul dives into some fairly deeply theological stuff to support something he's going to say regarding hair and head coverings in relation to worship. So why does he do this? Well, I've drawn from the commentaries of Anthony Thistleton, David Pryor, and Tom Wright. And drawing from all of those, here is my answer. And it starts with culture. Because Paul talks a lot about what people should wear during worship, what they should wear on their head. And of course, what you wear is often closely related to culture. Corinth was effectively Roman. Remember, it had been destroyed a hundred years earlier and rebuilt by the Romans with Roman planning, Roman architecture, Roman governance and culture. And in Roman culture, men and women wore very similar types of clothing, usually long robes of some description, but with one difference. Women, particularly married women, wore some kind of headdress, or we might call it a hat, but some kind of head covering which covered their hair. It was a sign of propriety, that she was married, that she was faithful to her husband, that she was unavailable to other men. That was the culture of the day. Now, some women wore their hair loose and free, but these were mainly available women, like the shrine prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite, while others had their heads shaved, particularly slave women who had no choice, and it was a sign of shame. In Roman society, all women of any class were considered inferior to men and would not be included in public discourse or debates. Their word was not considered of value like a man's. Sorry, ladies, but that's how it was. So now imagine this, church in Corinth, embedded within this culture. Paul has brought a message of salvation, of healing, of freedom, of reconciliation. A message which has actually emancipated women, hugely compared to before. And the women in the church in Corinth, we see from verse 5, are actually leading the prayers, leading prophecy in the church. In other words, bringing the word of God in the church services. Something totally unheard of in the past. And Paul wrote to another church in Galatia that men and women are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no second-class Christians. This was revolutionary. So, far from Paul being a chauvinist, in the culture of his day, Paul was a liberator of women. So then, why does he bang on about head coverings and man being the head of the woman? Well... Clearly, what had happened was that in this newly emancipated life of women in the church, some of them were taking their newfound freedoms a step too far. And were probably, we don't know it for sure, but it seems very likely that they had started to uncover their heads, uncover their hair during public worship, even while they were praying and prophesying. Now, that wouldn't matter in St. Matthew's in 2018, but in a city and a culture where to uncover your hair meant you were sexually available, can you imagine how distracting that was for both the men in the church and for the married women who perhaps had husbands present with them in the room? 
It's really hard to draw the modern equivalent, but I think it would be a bit like all the women at St. Matthew's turning up to church wearing bikinis. Now, I know the weather is hot at the moment, and you might feel like turning up to church in a bikini, but believe me, God would not get worshipped very much if that happened. Do you see the problem? And so in that context, Paul appeals to the creation order in Genesis 2, where God breathes life into the first man, and then the woman is formed from the man. And so he concludes that the head, the source, if you like, of every woman is man, particularly that the head of every wife is her husband. And of course, since the head covering was a sign of being a woman of propriety in that culture, and probably a married woman, Paul is asking the women not to remove their head coverings, not to uncover their hair and let their hair down when they're worshipping God, because it's not going to honour God. It's just going to distract the others. And finally on this point, what about the angels? Why does Paul write in verse 10 that a woman ought to have authority over her own head? Some translations say a sign of authority over her own head because of the angels. Well, we don't know exactly, but the most popular interpretation of this is that the early church believed that when they worshipped God, the angels were present, worshipping with them. And many people would say that they believe that today, as I do. And so it was even more important that honour was given to God in the presence of the heavenly host of angels as they worshipped. Now, of course, in Western culture today, a hat or a head covering is no longer considered a necessary sign of either being married or especially honouring God. And so we interpret this scripture not as an, internal, as an eternal command of God for women to wear hats in church, but as an important mark of glorifying God in the culture of first century Corinth. But it's not irrelevant to us because it begs the question, Does the way in which we dress and speak and act when we come together in public worship honour God and not distract others from worshipping? Do we perhaps on occasions show off our freedom to worship in ways that distract others from meeting with God by how we dress, how we act, how we speak, how we sing? I don't know. I don't pretend to know the answer, but it's a good question to take to the Lord in prayer. I remember... Many years ago, a young lady coming to a service in another church wearing a very short miniskirt. And I am convinced that when she went forward for communion, I was not the only man in the room distracted from worshipping God. I also remember a man who had an upfront role in church who wore such threadbare old clothes which were falling to bits, huge gaping holes, threads hanging all over the place, really looking like a tramp. And do you know what? I wouldn't have minded if he was a tramp, if he was very poor, but we all knew he owned perfectly good clothes. I knew he didn't go to work like that. And you just got the feeling that he was drawing attention to himself by somehow showing that he was super spiritual wearing these threadbare clothes. That's the first subject Paul covers in this chapter. Does how we look, how we act and how we speak in church honour God and help one another to worship him. The second concern, 
how the Corinthians were conducting their services of Holy Communion. And in verse 17, Paul makes his displeasure absolutely clear. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch, that must have hurt. So what's going on? Well, once again, it's probably more helpful to start with the context of church life. The church met in people's houses. There were no church buildings for the first couple of hundred years of church life. All churches were house churches. And in order to have a place big enough for the church to meet, that meant meeting in the houses of the better off. And we know from both archaeology and ancient manuscripts that if you were a middle-class Corinthian, your house had effectively two reception rooms. One was called the triclinium, which was an inner sitting room, dining room, used by the host and favoured guests, which was furnished with couches at which the guests would recline and eat and chat. And the second room was called the atrium, which was more of a hallway or courtyard, which included a pool in the centre for catching rain. And because it had no couches, it could accommodate up to about 30 less esteemed guests who would sit or stand in what amounted to an overflow room. So, back to the passage. From verse 17 onwards, which we read, which we read out, Paul complains that there are divisions and differences between the church members because when they come together to share in bread and wine, some of them go ahead with their own private suppers, while others, probably those in the overflow room who arrive later, remain hungry. Many theologians have speculated that those better off with more leisure time were gathering for a sumptuous meal together beforehand in the triclinium while the working classes who had to hurry on after finishing work, who had little means, perhaps slaves as well, were arriving later to find that they were excluded from the meal. And Paul says in verse 22 that this behaviour they are displaying is despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. Now, of course, there's a general lesson here for many of us who are fortunate enough not to need food parcels or universal credit or other assistance, that we should be generous and inclusive and hospitable to those who are not so well off. And the question it poses to us is this. Are there more subtle ways in which we create divisions within the church that make some people feel... I don't belong here. Again, I don't pretend to know the answer, but it's a question worth asking, particularly as we, at St. Matthew's, we know that we want to try to build a more close-knit and interdependent church family. But there's something much deeper going on here which concerns Paul a lot, and it's about the casual attitude of these Christians participating in the Lord's Supper. What we read in verses 23 to 26 is the earliest recorded liturgy of the church. And you'll recognise it because we use these words, or very similar ones, whenever we come to communion. Because Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper was a precious reenactment of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And the early church had established particular traditions of words and actions for that reenactment. Paul makes it very clear in verse 26 that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in that one sentence... He says that communion is both a remembering of the death of Jesus, in other words, placing ourselves again at the foot of the cross, and also a look forward to Jesus' promised return. That's why Paul is so upset with the unchristlike behaviour of some of the Corinthian Christians, who would rock up to a church meeting, gorge themselves on a sumptuous meal, while leaving the poorer members outside in the overflow room with empty bellies to go hungry. It's a travesty, says Paul. And in the final two paragraphs, he tells them they're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That they should examine themselves. That they should discern the body of Christ. In other words, have the care and respect of every member of the church, including Christ as the head, and act accordingly. Or they will bring judgment on themselves. Now, it's easy to say, great, that's really interesting about the church in Corinth, but we don't do anything like that. We turn up on a Sunday morning after having had breakfast at home, if we so felt like it, and we share the bread and wine of communion together. This doesn't apply to us. So what does it say to us? Well, one thing it says is that when we come together to worship God as Christians, there is a central point that we are proclaiming. Namely, we are remembering that Jesus died for us. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. We're reminded that once we were sinners without hope, but that now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are forgiven, saved by the grace of God in Jesus, set free and transformed by his love to become more like Christ. On the Alpha course this week, we were introduced to a man by the name of Graham Seed. I'll I'll finish with this story. He and his mother were abused and beaten by his father when he was a child. And by the time he was in his late 20s, he was up on a murder charge himself. He's never forgotten the words of his mother when she told him, you're worse than your dad because he knew how bad his dad was. And after many stretches in prison for repeated serious crimes, he was eventually released and became a homeless, alcoholic beggar on the streets. And from time to time, a group of local Christians used to come and tell him of the love of Jesus, and he used to chase them away. But one day he collapsed with failing internal organs, and he was put on a ventilator, he was in a coma, until the doctors told his family they could do nothing more. He was effectively dead, and they should allow them to turn off the machines and let him die. 
the Christians who had known him on the street heard that he was in hospital, very ill, and persuaded the family and the doctors to let them pray for him before they turned off the machines. And as they laid hands on him and prayed, he woke up. He subsequently went on an Alpha course himself. He asked Jesus to save him from the pitiful life that he'd been leading. He joined the church. His life was transformed. He lost his hatred, his anger, his addictions. And for almost the last 20 years, he has dedicated his life to visiting prisons and helping others to find salvation and new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul is so upset. The cross of Christ should be transformational in a Christian's life. But some of these Corinthians were acting like selfish, greedy, self-important and obviously untransformed people, making a travesty out of the sacrifice of our Lord. And so before we come to communion, we should examine ourselves. And who should come to the table? Is it only those who are confirmed? Is it only those who are baptised? Well, I don't think it's just that. That's why I love the invitation to the Lord's table, which goes like this. Come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come, not because you have all faith, but because you have some faith and would like to grow in it. Come, because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Come, because he loves you and wants to give you everything. Come, because all is ready and we are his body. And so the only qualification for coming to the table and sharing in the bread and wine is that you desire to follow Jesus. That he has captivated your heart as he captivated Graham's heart. And that however little you feel you know him now, you want to know him better. You may not even be baptised yet, but if you feel in your heart that you would like to be baptised at the next opportunity then come and share in the bread and wine today because Jesus welcomes you. To share in the bread and wine is to put yourself at the foot of the cross. It's to say, Jesus, you died for me. And I want to declare that by joining the church family at the Lord's table, I love you. And I know you died for me. And if you don't feel ready, that's great. Come up for a blessing. And then perhaps walk over to the prayer ministry team and take to prayer whatever it is that maybe is holding you back. Ask them to pray for you. Because Jesus loves you. And he loves it when we come to him with our questions, with our troubles, and with our very lives. Let's pray.